We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we produce this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and we believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation and respect. I'm Kimberly McKenzie. And I'm Paul Nazareth. Welcome to The Intersection. joining us today. We're so glad you're here. We're also really glad to be joined by Anne Rosenfield. Over the past 30 years, Anne has raised millions of dollars for a variety of organizations. She is a teacher, a board member, an executive director, a change maker, a conference planner, and also currently editor of Hillborn Charity E-News, Canada's own weekly charity newsletter. Anne sure knows her stuff. And we know that because we know Anne. Paul and I have known her for decades, and she is someone who is always willing to challenge the status quo, look for solutions when folks seem stuck, and will roll up her sleeves to do the heavy lifting whenever it is necessary. So please join us in welcoming Anne to the Hub. Paul, how are hey. you today? Doing super good. Very excited. Spring's here. <laughs> I'm loving your background. Those cherry blossoms will be out in the high park before we know it, right? Yeah. So today we have a special treat. Um, Anne Rosenfeld is joining us. Anne, are you there? Here I am. Who are you? Welcome to the hub. We're so glad you were able to make time for us today. Thanks for having me. I, listen, any excuse to talk to you guys, I'm there. <laughs> so sweet. So sweet. So today we thought because you are editor of Hillborn, because you are very wise and experienced and you uh, clearly see the big picture across the sector, Paul and I thought it might be nice to have a conversation with you about challenging our assumptions and things we wish we had known and, and how we're rethinking uh, our approach to the sector. So we're, we, we're very grateful that you could be here today. Oh my gosh. I'm, like I said, you guys can call me every week and we can talk every week just so that I can hang out with you. So I'm looking forward to this. So I was thinking about this conversation and um, I, I, I was thinking about what I wish I had known 23 years ago when I started working in the sector. And what I really, really wish I had known is that I didn't have to wear a skirt to a board meeting to influence change. I wish I had that power now. And I'm, I'm wondering, what do, you, where, what do you both wish you had known? Um, I wish I had known, uh, I'm gonna quote Rosemary Oliver on this. The only thing your boss cares about is dollars. Hmm. And so I had wished I had known there's something I call the curse of the competent. When you're a capable person in an organization, often 
you'll have all these other tasks that'll get loaded on you. You know, you'll end up doing the company this or the organization that or whatever. And they'll always be like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Except for that when it comes time for your performance to be evaluated, all of a sudden no one's going to remember that three month project that you uh, that you were asked to do. So I'm not saying, you know, say no to everything. What I am saying is that if you're going to do that three month project, do it because it's interesting to you. Do it because it's going to help you learn something you're interested in or help you build a skill, but don't necessarily do it um, just to be a good person, which is a good thing to do do it because it will have to be its own reward because trust me you will receive no reward for doing it in your work great share i mean especially if that project isn't going to drive revenue right yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah what about you paul I, that's a great one from Anne because know. you know that's how we're hired and fired mine is that flexibility will do more for you than certainty and I always was investing. Okay, if I know this thing, if I get the CFRE, if I learn these plan giving vehicles, if I learn all the tax and law, mm -hmm. I'll get that money. And, you know, head, head, head doesn't matter a damn because the heart will outmaneuver the head every time. And every time I thought I was certain was when someone knocked my legs out from under me. And, and it was. <laughs> That's what so many of my colleagues, you know, it hurts me that that happens to them. But that is, yeah. that's the big one for me. Last, it's the reason I lost my first job in fundraising. I increased fundraising by 400%. But there was this one little thing I didn't do, didn't focus on. And they literally said, you didn't do that thing. And that's what we really wanted. So, yeah. I mean, again, Anne has done this in her career. I've watched it where she's put her, she's put her, her body, her life in the in the way of challenging her assumptions to work for organizations that are big or small or unique or trying different things and that's where fulfillment that's where success that's where impact has really come from you know you make when you say i talk about flexibility i don't know if you've ever heard the expression if you want to hear god laugh make plans right you bet <laughs> and that would you know that was March 2020 for sure, right? Oh, we had yeah. all these things. Yeah. I was, I'll tell you, I was peaking on some of these amazing plans. Yeah. And the world blew up. And you know, that's why I'm so excited about this book and some of the discussions because we've never had a better excuse to put aside our ego and all of our egos have been decimated. Mm -hmm. You know, and so great, you got this excuse to say, all right, let's rethink this thing. It's not just that I was wrong. The information has changed. The world has changed. You're allowed to say, I don't have to do that anymore because I can't. Yeah. So, Paul, we're reading the same book right now. I think you're a little bit ahead of me. Um, do you want to introduce, do you want to just talk about the book for a second and, and yes. then we'll jump into a conversation about it? Sure. So, Think Again by Adam Grant. Uh, I've written a recent article for Hellborn on this, but it's one of these, I, I consider a great book as one that tears up your life. And the further down to the core it gets, the better the quality of the book. Adam did that uh, a little under a decade ago with his yeah. book, Give and Take, what yeah. I consider to be the best book on networking in a decade. Mm -hmm. And this book, perfect book for this, for this time in our world to say, how do you rethink? How do you think again? How do you challenge long-held assumptions? And it's tearing me right down to the core of what we do 
here in charity, philanthropy, social good. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's an incredible piece. It, um, I think a few weeks ago, Anne, I put out on Twitter because I really do believe this at 53 years old, years old, 23 years into this career, I feel like I know less today than I knew 15 years ago. <laughs> I think you were one of the people who I said, does anybody else feel like they don't know anything anymore? And you were like, yes, I do. <laughs> and, and so to Paul's point, it absolutely is a really great time to sit back and think differently about ourselves and how we show up in the world and how we add value or don't. And, um, and, and one of the, I mean, there are so many, but um, one of the things that I've just through reading Adam's book, I, he talks about the idea of um, task conflict versus emotional conflict. And that was so interesting to me because I was thinking about all of the bosses that I have had in my career and how they were really stressful relationships, every single one of them. And yet I think back on all of them with great respect and fondness, and we accomplished so much together in each one of those organizations. And so this idea of task conflict um, was really interesting to me because we need to challenge, don't we? We need to challenge each other. Yeah. Has there been a situation where that has been true for you, either of you? I feel like I can see Paul like cracking his <laughs> yeah. knuckles and He's going, like, Where do I start? How much yeah. time do you have, it's, lady? It's two things. One is the organization where I could have made the biggest change with the biggest scope, with the biggest money, with the most influence was where the team valued being nice and collegial more than anything else and where we accomplished the least and I burnt out. Mm-hmm. Then I went to a team where the leader valued that conflict the over intellectual content and not personal and spent a huge amount of time creating psychological safety and helping people show up their full selves to work, but conflict on the content, so much so that we had this one meeting where we were standing up and it was the first time I ever swore at an office. And we were yelling in front of the staff and I went back to my office and was breathing into a paper bag, literally going, <laughs> and this person came and said, so you you know that was good, right? And I was like, no, no, I don't ever want to do that again. She goes, then you won't work here very long. And she said, you know, how, how long would you have spent doing that in a, you know, a previous, frankly, unionized environment where people valued that, that niceness? And I said, that would have taken six weeks to six months. She said, it took us six minutes. You just almost had to die as part of it. So, you know, get a little bit better at the parry and thrust. Uh, value the outcome more than the nicety and the harmony. And we're going to do great things. And the fact is that person, we scaled the organization 10 times, massive in- impact. Um, but that's the challenge. And I challenge a lot of people, corporate people who come into charity, go, I want to come here because everybody's so nice. No. And actually not nice in that we need to be more activist. We need to be more challenging and stand up for ourselves. But also, there's also a terrible uh, one of terrible human beings who made their money crushing human souls and literally fracking the earth. And now they have a foundation that doesn't make them nice. Right. So this is the time where it's time to go right down to the core and challenge who we are, what we are and how we do it.
So I'm going to, I'm going to challenge you. You said something just in passing. Mm. Um, I'm going to challenge you on kind of saying unionized environment mm. only because I would say I've seen unionized environments that have worked really well for people. And I've seen unionized environments that work really badly for people. So I feel like it's just like anything else. You're right. uh, I think a good union can create a great, strong, respectful workplace. Mm -hmm. And a terrible union can create a terrible workplace. But then there are plenty of non-union shops that are also great workplaces and terrible workplaces. So great I'm... Point. Because you know what the fact is too, it, you know, they were talking about how the process, the procedure, the bureaucracy, but I've never been as healthy as I was in that shop physically, literally because of the benefits and the structure. And then, you know, I, people know I went to work for a bank and the fact is a bank, and this was right after the 2008 crash when banks had recently destroyed the world, but they treated me better as a human being than any charity ever did. And I never forgot that. So, yeah. you know, it's all, it is all about the, the leader and the team and the culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Did you know, a small aside, Paul, did you know that I also worked at that bank? Yes, indeed. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah, yeah they were really me. They trained me, taught me a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've been rethinking lately is the um, conversation that many folks have been having for quite some time around the difference between donor-centered fundraising and community-centered fundraising. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have... Um, spoken at conferences where I've been up on a podium evangelizing donor love, telling my own little love story. And the more I dig into it, the more I see that actually community-centered fundraising is what the world needs right now. And writing in a way that's engaging for the donor is, of course, a great way to accomplish that. But that that those two things don't need to be mutually exclusive. Does that make sense? And I yeah. feel that these people who are arguing are arguing two completely different systems. Yeah. One is, is arguing public transit and the other one is arguing individual right to own automobiles. Yeah. It, it and is like two completely different things at different scale too. Yeah, it does seem like there's two different conversations happening. What do you think, Anne? Well, I mean, there's another piece uh, to this that um, you know, in this conversation, people will also often say, um, and for those of us who are who are listening, not uh, viewing, you need to know that I'm a cisgendered white straight woman. Um, and so, you know, kind of group of white people will kind of, and like, even if it's all white people in the room, will kind of drop their voices. And there's some of this has been happening in social media and saying, well, but let's face it, all donors are, you know, white, white people, mostly white guys, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we're going to talk about questioning assumptions, you know, Kimberly, um, you're a whippersnapper as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I've been I've been doing this actually longer than you've been doing it. And I go so far back. I remember when I started in my career and at the start of my career. Um, and I think our sector is still largely structured this way. It was structured for, you know, captains of industry and they were structured for you know the ceos of major corporations who were disproportionately all white mm -hmm. and then in the 90s 
And at the time I was working for a university, I was working in a faculty faculty that had all almost all women graduates. And I, you know, actually had someone who was a vice president at that university say to my boss, you know, Anne's a lovely person, but let's face it, you know, people in that female dominated profession aren't going to raise any money because they don't have any money because they're all women. So there was this research coming out of the U.S. from the uh, what it was at the time, the National Network of Women uh, in Philanthropy, which is now the uh, at the Lilly Center for Philanthropy, the Women's Philanthropy Network. And they did some great research in the mid 90s that found that because at the time the reputation was is that women philanthropists, you know, you don't really get gifts from them. They only do special events. They're a ton of work. They never give major gifts. You know, there are lots of work, blah, blah, blah. And these folks, because they were academic, it was uh, Sandra Shaw and Martha Taylor did actual research that found that, in fact, women gave as generously as men but they engaged differently as philanthropists. Women were more likely to make an exploratory gift, see how the charity treated them, and then they were more likely to make larger gifts, that women tended overall as major donors to be more loyal, that women tended to be less hierarchical about who they spoke with in the organization. So, you know, on the one hand, there was this assumption that everybody who's big money is all male and white and a corporate CEO, and it's no point in talking to anyone else. Sure, maybe for a thousand bucks, but no point in talking to anyone else. And then, you know, we started, you know, working in this range, and then there started getting to be the major gifts and even the mega gifts from women donors. And, you know, the question that really begs is, you know, how much money were we leaving in the table all along with having all male cabinets, with having, when I started in the profession, the fundraising was a 75% male profession. So how much money were we leaving on the table because we assumed we there was only one kind of donor? And then over the course of my career, I remember early, similarly, people would say privately, I was living in San Francisco, oh, you know, the gay community, they're so stingy. Well, you know, I think today, people would be shocked to hear that people used to say that the gay community was so stingy. The gay community has been incredibly philanthropic to many organizations. So then people used to say, oh, the Chinese community, they don't really give. Well, look at some of the incredible events that we've seen, some of the hospital campaigns that we've seen, some of the mega million dollar gifts. So I think all to say that, you know, over the course of my career, there's consistently been this sort of the only, there's this, there's this almost truism i'm using in quotes that the only donors are basically still the straight white cisgendered captains of industry everyone else are bit players or maybe they you know they came by their money other ways but they're not the real players and yet time after time in our profession fundraisers have challenged that and found that no in fact yes you know wealth is more concentrated in those communities but that doesn't mean that they're the only only options for us. So I think that's the thing that's also missing in this conversation is, okay, so show me your research. Show me your research that says that these are the only, that white people, that white men are, show me the research that says they're the only possible major donors, not just anecdotal experience. Show me, show me the data. Which today we finally have, 
right? So yeah. full credit to organizations like Imagine Canada putting out the immigrant and newcomer giving report just this year, to organizations like TD putting out the Women in Wealth uh, report, StatsCan Canadian uh, data, and organizations like the Foundation for Black Communities and Charity Report who did reporting on the where the money goes when it comes to BIPOC communities. So well, the cool thing is we're also swimming in data for the first time in a long time to yeah. actually prove what we have known for a long time too. So that well, I hope I, that helps us. So I would say to prove what, there's two we's, right? Mm -hmm. There's kind of, there's kind of the, you know, the, the, we are senior fundraising leadership but there is a branch of senior fundraising leadership who would completely disagree with your statement, what we've known all along, yeah. right? Because we're seeing those people on social media as recently as a week ago saying exactly, you know, donors are disproportionately white, you know? So we've known that all along. It's just, we've needed the data to demonstrate what we have intuitively known. And I, I just want to add to your list the research from uh, Dr. Christian Maida on this topic about uh, immigrant philanthropy. Yeah, Canadian diaspora giving. Uh, and again, what we know today. That's the other part too. Because yeah. you've got to recognize things have changed, right? There was a time where a lot of these things were true because the system was created out of patron and patriarchy. It was that way for a long time. But we know that it's changed and it's really important that we go out and get the data and pay for it. That's the other challenging thing too. How do we go and pay for it? Because so many other people have either older research or again, the, the anecdotal because so many people are from the old school. But you know, I'm gonna say yes and, and I'm gonna kind of stick with women's philanthropy because it's, it's, a, it's a subject area of interest to me. And I'm gonna say yes and. So um, the Art Gallery of Ontario, which I love, so who gave the original collection to the to the uh, Art Gallery of Toronto, the original collection in all the land? A woman. A woman donated that land. She donated her art collection. And if you if you're around the AGO and I, I, I'm unfortunately I forget her name, which if had I known, I would have written it down. Um, but part of the reason you don't know her name is that the uh, there's a street there named for her husband. Darcy Street is named for her husband. But she came into the marriage with money. He had money too. He died first. Like, she's still the one that was the donor. So the other question I have is how many stories do we have that we've buried of black philanthropists, of uh, indigenous philanthropists, of women philanthropists, of Asian community philanthropists, you know, I, I, yes, and I think there are lots of those stories out there. I don't think that the Art Gallery of Ontario is a unique story in North America by any stretch. And what leg of the race was it? Right. The other part Sorry, is Paul, can you say that again? I need you a little closer what, to your mic. Leg of the race, Because again, we're, you know, it's the relay race. And very often we're just paying attention to that home stretch. They get all the glory. Right. Yeah. But today, when we look at, you know, a lot of the social good movements started with the community group, then moved to crowdfunding, then moved to a nonprofit, then moved to a charity and evolved to a foundation. And that's the one that's getting the glory. Right. When you know what? We have to really recognize who started it, who had the idea, who, who came, brought it into existence, not just who paid for it, 
right? And so today when I'm challenging all those assumptions too, it's hard because as a charity person, as a fundraising person, I've been complaining for the last few years about the crowdfundings of the world, about the volunteer groups that aren't doing it the quote unquote charity or right way, what is right, right? And so in community centered, donor centered, the question is who's trying to do good? And where does that, that kernel come from? And how do we fan that flame? As opposed to always saying, we'll douse out anything that doesn't fit the mold that we believe in. So I'd like to, I just want to make sure that I understand what you're both saying. Um, because I have read a lot about the importance of decol, a lot, like for a week, I've been very interested in digging into the decolonization of philanthropy. But if, if what I'm hearing is, there is diversity in fundraising. We're just not telling those stories. Because again, you have to have you have to have the credentials, you have to have the money, you have to have the profile. And you know, there's so many things that keep BIPOC people out, and so many things that keep status quo as it is. But I do think, I don't know much about decolonizing philanthropy, so I, I can't speak to that topic. What I'm trying to say, not very clearly, is that I think even within colonized philanthropy, there's a much broader range of stories, even within the traditional philanthropy narrative. Mm -hmm. um, another example I would note is that, you know, uh, our one of our professional associations, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, was uh, founded in 1960 by three men, two white, one black. So you would think that, you know, we act as a sector as if there's only ever been white fundraisers, that there's, you know, anybody who's not white is somehow an anomaly or a trailblazer or, you know, something new. But in fact, you know, arguably into the roots of probably what is today modern professional fundraising, there th that was not that that was not the whole story then. But over time, I, I feel like I don't feel like we write people out of history because I think similar to that founder of AFP and I think similar to that woman who actually gave the money for the Art Gallery of Ontario. I don't think we wrote write them out because I don't think we put write them in in the first place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think they get erased. I don't think they were ever there. Yeah. Right. Right. That's uh, a, a, that's a great point. And it's such a big complex issue. It's so easy to get overwhelmed and to not know exactly how to tackle it. But part of it is voicing, voicing, well, I'm stumbling because I don't know what to say. Well, but but well, I think one of the things we can do in our world is, is start, uh, retelling the stories with more information. Like, as I say, I can't speak to decolonizing philanthropy. What I can say, and I feel capable of, is telling those kinds of stories. And if I was working for, sorry, I'll, I'll pick That's on the fine. CNIB. You know, the CNIB has a plaque up about this guy, Edgar Robinson, who was the founder of the CNIB library. Um, he was a, a war veteran who was blinded. Um, and But tragically, he died quite young. And so for the next 35 years, his wife kept the library going. 
Well, why isn't that library named for both of them? Mm -hmm. So I think there are things we can do within our organizations to, to me, as I say, bring some of that history back in. Right. Say, you know, why aren't we talking about both of these people? Or why aren't we talking more about this situation, right? Bring some of those narratives in mm -hmm. as opposed to taking a very, um, a very narrow, mm -hmm. um, narrow view. And I, you know, I will speak to decolonizing philanthropy. I'm excited. I'm going to be chatting with uh, our North American champion, Edgar Villanueva, in a couple of days. Uh, oh, stop. Oh, no. Right. So, um, but, you know, his book, Decolonizing Wealth, challenged a lot of that. And in his frameworks, he, he talked a lot about how to shift the gravity of how we talk about it. Mm -hmm. One is to start unearthing these stories by asking more questions and doing that classic. And of course, we attributed <laughs> to European history when Indigenous wisdom has this for so long, mm -hmm. asking those multiple whys. Why is it this way? How did it start? Why did it start? Where did that money come from? Uh, and that's one of the challenges there, too. But the other one, too, is him fundamentally shifting what it is that why we're doing it. You know, he talks about how money can be medicine. And so many times philanthropy, we, we haven't admitted, can also do harm because it's reinforcing those wrong systems that we built. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're lucky in Canada to have, you know, the circle on Aboriginal philanthropy who has this declaration that we, that Canadian charities can be part of to say, how can we restart? My only challenge and my fear is I am very afraid that we are going to take this engine apart while we're driving the car on the highway. Yeah. Right? We yeah. talked about that bottom line. Nobody's boss is going to change their fundraising goals, right? If we're challenging fundraising and have to deconstruct the thing down to the studs, nobody's going to stop fundraising. Everybody still has fundraising goals. The machine still has to happen. And so I'm so confused about how can we figure out how to do this yeah. while the whole thing is still going. I completely share that um, line of thinking with you because if, 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 if our traditional construct is, well, let me take a sidestep. Uh, my daughter's boyfriend was telling me the other night uh, that he worked for a company in Papua New Guinea. And there, when organizations um, run up to conflict, or if somebody has a problem with what somebody said, then a little wooden doll gets placed um, outside the door. And everything stops until they resolve the issue that brought that doll forward. And I was reading about this article on decolonizing philanthropy and thinking about the way our board of directors are governed. And it's a very, you know, Robert's rules of order. It's sort of a corporate way of making decisions. And, and what would happen, you know, how could we blow up that system so that we can have more diverse experiences at the decision-making table and feel more than an other at the table, right? So I think we do need to take a big step back if we could and think about are our boards functioning in an inclusive way? I'm just afraid because I also know that it functions less like the Papua New Guinea doll and more like the horse's head in The Godfather 2 uh, with white fragility being what it is. We challenge any of these systems and I just also know people are going to be like, fine, cool. Y'all have these discussions. I'll stop giving. I'll take myself out of the equation and you try to make it float. 
I think and that's I, the big risk. And but you know, but you know, I think then, but you know, so like, yeah, I would say a few things kind of including kind of like who's, who says, right. Mm -hmm. You know, who, you know, who says that, you know, speaking broadly, not about individual organizations, but who says that the charity sector is working all that well right now anyway. Right. Yeah, fair. Um, you know, it, you know, at, you know, charities for the most part, everyone, um, you know, there's a lot of issues around boards. There's a lot of issues around boards. Um, you know, one of the things that is interesting to me about boards is boards, when there's a challenge, my observation is boards tend to rise to the challenge. So COVID has been a difficult time, but probably been a great time in terms of boards. Like boards have probably been very engaged. Um, overall have probably tended in, on balance to be actually very helpful. Um, you know, it, it, like it's actually been probably pretty strong, but generally in non COVID times, unless there's an organization crisis, there's a whole problem with keeping boards engaged. And, you know, in fundraising capital campaigns always hit the doldrums at about the 80% raised mark and then really have a tremendous amount of trouble reaching the last 20%. And there's a lot of good data to show it's not even 80-20 these days in terms of giving, it's more like one in 99. So, you know, those all seem to me to be pretty big canary and coal mine types of situations. So sure we can get better at what we do we can be more effective at what we can do this time is a time for us to say but was it really actually broadly really working all that well to begin with yeah one of my worries is that when we all get vaccinated and covid goes away um, that charities are going to think they can just go back to the way they used to function and I, there's been a lot of innovation and um, agility in the sector that I hope that we can keep. Well, or will we kind of, I mean, I think there's lots of questions. You know, one of the things this moment has done is, you know, for example, with, you know, kind of who 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 we consider to be part of the, what is that? I feel like, Paul, this would be a thing you'd say, who can play in our sandbox? You know, we've generally said people with disabilities, if you know, you have to be able to haul yourself to an office somewhere five days a week for 40 hours a week. And if you would get to that office using wheel trans or if you need to work some kind of um, have some kind of accommodations, then we as a society have said, you know what, thanks, we don't really need you. You know, we have something like 80% unemployment for people with disabilities. You know, I, I think the equal concern is the charity sector is not only if we, we've changed the way we work on so many levels. And so then this is a moment to say, hey, who says we all have to be in offices five days a week, 40 hours a week? Like, why can't we have, you know, if there are people for whom people who are more introverted mm -hmm. and, you know, if there are whole areas of work that honestly you can probably do just as well from home that can be evaluated just as effectively with people working from home data work prospect research work a lot of direct response work a lot of social media 
Like, and even, you know, we're finding out a surprising amount of major gifts doesn't seem to need like Zoom and telephone or replaced right. a lot of in-person meetings. Yeah. So why don't we say, here's a crazy idea. Instead of saying, we're going to make Kimberly and Paul and Anne as colleagues all come to the same office for the same working hours every day, even though Kimberly, Paul and Anne have, they all work in fundraising, but they have three different jobs. Why don't we say instead, how can we optimize how each of those people work? And why don't we be results driven instead of being, you know, cookie cutter factory driven? And then let's see, let's see how people do. Like we've done this big experiment for the last year. Let's keep it going. Mm -hmm. I and agree. What's the thing that was holding us back the whole time? Pants. Pants? Has <laughs> the world's creativity been unleashed now that very few people are wearing pants? I'm being facetious, but I think yeah, the big yeah. thing is we'll never you have, have pants on right now, Paul. I've, I haven't worn okay. pants in like a year. Gym shorts, gym shorts is the key. But you know, is we'll never have a better time than where we have this reset on so many levels to rebuild. When they say build back better, yeah, you know, I, I think we've got a real chance to ask the questions and to, to build back flexibly for what everybody needs. Again, equality and equity doesn't mean doing everything the same. Yeah, right? but that's yeah. the other part too. I think there's a lot of people dying to get back to the office. I got small kids. I'm, I'll, if you give me a porta potty, I would work in it. Uh, but you know, what's that flexibility? The mm -hmm. time of hours, the location, the remoteness, the technology. I think that's the part where I'm seeing people really do the big rethink. Yeah, yeah. Because then that can also start to affect who we're employing mm -hmm. and how we're employing them, right? And also, um, from my perspective, eliminating being able to connect more with people online has taken away all of the geographical boundaries around that. And the the women in the hub conversations that we're having, we had the first one yesterday, um, there were women on four different continents who came together, who never would have been able to do that otherwise. And it was just so special. It was so special. It was really, really uplifting to be able to broaden a network and see that there's more than my local AFP chapter to connect with. Uh -huh. Shout out to, you know, UK, if show the salary didn't come over across the, the sea, would we have been in the totally new landscape that we find ourselves today? And yeah. ask even better questions than just show the salary, which is why does a job that's raising money require a university degree? Yeah. Right. And all those questions. So, yeah, the world opening up again, I think, has given us better questions. Yeah. yeah. But I think to to your point, Kimberly, um, do we, you know, people, people are so, you know, it feels like we've been living, you know, in a mix master for the last, you know, 13 months. Right. Like we've been on like spin the whole time. Um, I feel like I might be quoting Rob Peacock there. So, you know, like TM on that one, because I think he always talked about things being on spin cycle. Um, so, but are people going to just so long for what they think of as normal that then are they going to kind of drive back to the office and then maybe a month in go or six months and go, wait, wait, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. wait, actually there were benefits to working from home and actually I'd like to maybe do Habsy, Habsy, but do you know what I mean? Like yeah. employers thinking about how to bring back folks 
in ways, getting all of us, including employers and employees to think about, you know, how, what do, what do I want my work to look like in 2025 and then reverse engineer from there, as opposed to saying, okay, you know, like blow a whistle, you know, game, COVID game over back into the office people. That is such a great, great point um, that, you know, my wish in Kimberly's dream world, it would be that every single organization sits down and has that conversation, not let's go back to normal, but how do, I know it's cliche, but how do we build better? What have we learned? What did we gain? How do we, there's an authenticity, there's an emotion, there's a, a deeper connection, deeper conversations are happening now. How do we keep that vulnerability moving forward um, in our new normal? Yeah. So, uh, so I think, I'm, I'm, so actually I'm gonna go a little bit on a variation on a theme sure. here. Yeah, Because I think there's some things about flexibility and this may be me because I'm old school, I am super anxious about vulnerability in the workplace because I feel like it always comes back to bite the person in the behind. So it's not that I don't think it's a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. I really worry though about people. I feel like this whole bring your whole self mm -hmm. uh, question is it's sort of like uh, years ago when I was taking uh, a new job and I had a coworker taking a new job at the same time and the organization said, oh, we're a family friendly workplace. And she said, well, we'll see how true that is the first time I call in and tell you I can't come to work because my kid's sick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, sure, bring your whole self to work. I just worry that your employer will say, bring yourself whole self to work. Yeah, yeah. But you know, when you call in sick for mental health reasons, when you say that because of your anxiety, you need to be working from home, when you uh, need to take a leave for three months for, you know, treatment of some sort or, or whatever, it, you know, is your employer really going to embrace your whole self or are they going to just kind of quietly bide their time until they package you out? You got to articulate what that means as a as a team culture, right? And yeah. actually, great podcast recently with our author, Adam Grant and Brene Brown, mm -hmm. talking about how vulnerability does not mean total disclosure. They're going to come on this podcast, Paul. Yes, that's a great every time I say that. But it's, it's a great one to, to help people understand how do you create psychological safety right. as well. And then again, question those pieces. You know, I was in a spiritual discussion recently where a group, one of my favorite podcasters, Rabbi Brian with the 77%, who said, you know, we talk a lot about the golden rule, but we've come to know in the past number of decades, the platinum rule. He said, the golden rule is treat people like you would like to be treated. But guess what? You treat yourself like garbage. Right, so, <laughs> so the rule is treating other people the know the way you know they need to be treated, and ask them how they want to be treated, as opposed to you assuming how they how they want to be treated, because that's you. Because again, society was built on a very particular mold with only two shapes, and we now know that there's so much more. So again, that's the build back. I think again, that flexibility for me, what it comes back to, to say, it, you know, it's more about matching than prescription. 
a dialogue rather than the monologue. And so many of our workplaces are the monologue, right? We're looking for X and you fill that description or you don't work here. And that's the part where I think people are, are building better. Everything, workplaces, philanthropy, all of it. I agree. <laughs> that, that, that my mom always says that sound is the sound of an angel flying overhead. Yeah, it's like, I love how these conversations just, they just have a natural arc to them. And you just know, oh, okay, we're, here we are. Well, I think that that's, um, that's a great, great place for us to pause our conversation to continue it another time. And um, you, uh, you are doing such a great job with uh, Charity E-News. It's the newsletter that I read every week. And I look forward to seeing more of uh, more of those great articles in there. And also uh, Passover is this weekend. So it is it appropriate to say happy Passover? Is that Passover is a happy, ha, ha, Passover has happy with it. Yes. Good. Okay. Well, I hope that Thank you, you. Uh, have a, have a wonderful weekend celebrating however you celebrate that. Thank you. And for the two of you upcoming, uh, have a great Easter with, uh, your family near and far, perhaps, uh, not so near this year, but hopefully next year near. Fingers crossed. Yeah. yeah. Fingers crossed. Still overeaten. That's all the men. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, guys. Thanks. And thank you so much for your authenticity and your candor. We really enjoyed chatting with you. And thanks to all of you for listening. If we left you with more questions than answers, you are, of course, always welcome to the continue this conversation on a variety of platforms. Just visit intersectionhub.ca and it will tell you where to find us. And uh, of course, we'd be very grateful if you would share this uh, podcast, subscribe, comment below. The more engaged we are, the more people will get to hear it. So thank you for spending time here and we'll see you next time. <laughs>